I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hey, Monica. Hey, Jennifer. Very excited to be back this season, kicking off the podcast for 2023. So excited. And same here. I'm so thrilled to chat today with our guest who literally wrote the book on climate optimism. Yes. And before we introduce our special guests, I want to make it very clear that when we say climate optimism, we are not ignoring all the bad things happening in the world and only focusing on the good. But we are focusing on the solutions. And so our optimism is about recognizing the reality of the situation and taking meaningful, empowered actions towards a better future. Okay, I'm so glad you just said that. <laughs> it's all about how we approach challenges with an attitude of excitement over what's possible rather than leading with anger and anxiety. So our guest today is Anne Therese Gennari, author of Climate Optimist handbook, which comes out this month. In fact, it's already out. I have a copy. It's amazing. And it's all about shifting people's mindset from a place of fear to a place of excitement and adventure to make change. She also traces her own journey from a place of anger and fear towards a place of openness and that climate optimism. Exactly. And I think this book is so important in our current climate. I think when we only focus on the gloom and doom aspect of climate change, it becomes really easy to be apathetic and to just give up entirely. And Therese leads from a place of courage and excitement, which actually makes it easier for people to join the movement. Absolutely. So quick note, Anne Therese just had a baby. So you might hear a few sweet little baby sounds in the interview, <laughs> which is some of the best background noise we've ever heard. I know it was so cute. And I think you guys will really love this conversation. So let's get to our interview with Anne Therese Gennari. Anne Therese, welcome to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast. We're so excited to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, we've been talking about you quite a bit lately. <laughs> I know. We are always talking about optimism. So I want to jump in and actually ask you, what is climate optimism? Oh, what a great question. And it's more complex maybe than you might think. I started out as a climate optimist thinking that to be a climate optimist was to just put on this mindset of we can do it. Like, let's focus on the positive news. Let's ignore all the negative because that's just going to drag me down and make me all doomy and gloomy. But I can find the good positive news out there and focus on those and spread those to the world around me. And that's one side of it for sure. But I also learned pretty quickly that although I try not to pay attention to the negative, my body is still keeping score and it will catch up with me. So I would say my climate anxiety intensified in my early days or years as a climate optimist because I wasn't paying attention to the reality of things. And so what I teach today and what I believe is true climate optimism can only exist in this sort of intersection between grounded awareness and empowered action, which means that you recognize that we are in a big crisis mode. But of course, you want to see positive 
movement moving forward and you want to believe in a better future, but you also understand that in order to remain an optimist, you have to participate in that shift. You have to show up for the change. And not only because you should and you have to to kind of like earn your score as a climate optimist, but actually because these actions in themselves will come back and reward you. You will feel better, more optimistic, more motivated, and you will start to actually believe in a positive future. So for me, being a climate optimist is recognizing that we're in a very significant time in history. And that means that we all have this opportunity to participate in what we want to create next. Okay, can we just, we're done now. That's good. <laughs> that, was okay. so, that was honestly, and that was so beautiful. That was a great way to really describe it because Monica will attest to the fact that we always try and leave with a lens of hope and that our hope is always like, how do we have the conversations that are hard? They're very hard conversations and they're very deep. But like you just said, to this point of we have to be aware to really then get to the bottom of how we have hope and optimism for the future. We have to have the lens of both to get there. But how did you get to this point? Like, what was your background to lead you to become this person? So I have a TED Talk that goes from angry activist to climate optimist. <laughs> and it's really about that storyline <laughs> because I used to be the angry activist. I grew up somehow very just aware of the world and everything. And I was that friend who would like turn off the tap for my friends and like, you know, don't you know, there's like, there are kids in Africa who don't have water. And for some reason, it just really disturbed me that there was this misalignment with what was fair in the world. So I grew up very concerned. I learned about recycling early on. Living in Sweden, it was more of a thing, but was also definitely the one who would like take things out of the trash and then put it in the right bin and sort of do that. We're like, don't you know that this is not supposed to be in the trash? So definitely kind of policing people. And I'm sure people hated me behind my back for that. But I, yeah, I grew up a concerned teenager. When I learned about climate change, I thought for real that the world was going to flip on a dime because now we knew about this thing. And so when that response wasn't had, I just got so anxious about like, well, what are we supposed to do? Why, why is no one fixing this thing called climate change? But I also recognized that I was only a teenager and there was nothing I could do. So I tried to really just ignore the fact that I knew about it and just hope deep inside that someone else was taking care of it. But what I've recognized now in later years is that I actually started to grow this climate anxiety that no one was talking about at this point. I mean, this is like, what, 15 years ago. And I became this young adult who was really focused on my career, but also at the same time, extremely concerned about climate change and wasn't really paying attention to myself and the needs that I had to feel like an empowered, healthy, balanced young woman in this world. And I developed everything from an eating disorder from this. I would go out and put a face on and, and do all these like affirmations of I want to be happy. And it's, you know, the power of thought and all these things. And was trying to tell myself that I was supposed to feel happy because I wanted to feel happy. And I would come home at night and be extremely anxious. So it took a long time of trying to be what I call the angry activist, where I wanted to onboard people. I wanted to inspire people around me. But I was doing this from a lens of even like self-hatred. Like I was upset with myself because I was a part of the destruction. It was very real to me that, of course, I was also contributing to climate change at the same time. So as I was shaming people around me, I was shaming myself even more. And I learned that, first of all, it's not a very great way of inspiring people because you're not fun to be around and not very easy no. to listen to. <laughs> so you, if you want to ruin parties and make it very awkward, that's a great way of living. But it's not quite what I wanted yes. to do in my life. But it actually took me almost like a spiritual awakening after... And I also mentioned this in both my book and my TED Talk after a dinner conversation with my brother where I felt just so defeated. And I ended up on the floor in my parents' guest room 
crying in a way I've never cried before. And after that, this message came through to me and it was like, you're here to be a climate optimist. Like you're here to do this work. Like this is your thing, your passion, your whatever life's purpose. But you got to change your ways because this is not how you sustain yourself or move this work forward. So that was when I first even got a ping about climate optimism. I had no idea what that even meant. And then it took many years to figure out, like I said, how do you remain an optimist and not just wishful thinking? Because there's a difference between wanting to be one and actually showing up as one. And in your book, The Climate Optimist Handbook, there was a great story that maybe you'll share with us about you had been vegan at one point. And so I think more you were more plant focused or plant based now, but and you, I think, took your family in New York to like a diner or something, a hamburger place. Will you tell that story? Because I think that's a great example of how that you kind of like this catalyst through your life where we run into people or maybe we've been that person that we're super rigid on like, why are you eating this? Or why are you not trying the tap off or the lights off? Or, oh my God, is that a plastic straw? Where it's a very shameful and it's about guilt inducing. But tell the story I love about when you're in New York showing your family around. Yeah, thank you. First of all, I think maybe people who are listening can relate to this. When you make a big life decision like going vegan, and that was a very terrifying choice for me because I thought I was going to lose everything I worked for in terms of, you know, muzzle mass and all this stuff. But when you make that life decision and you suddenly feel like you have this incredible impact, not just on yourself, but on the world around you, you do feel like you're born anew. You feel like you have just gained insight to a new world that you want everyone else to be part of. And you just can't understand why people aren't getting it. You know, like, don't you understand that animals are hurting and like, this is such a beautiful way of life. And you just want everyone to get on this mm -hmm. journey with you. And so I was very much in that early stage. And like you said, my family came to visit in New York. I brought them to one of my favorite burger places because they had multiple different plant-based options. And I for sure thought that, you know, look at these amazing black bean burgers and all these things, like try one of those. <laughs> and they opted for the non-plant-based options. And here was people that I loved and respected and I thought were really cheering me on in my journey. And I'm like, why, when there are options, would you not go for them? And we started having conversation about it. And my poor aunt was trying to give me a little pushback because she was like, well, isn't it also good sometimes to have grazing animals for different reasons? And, and I just wouldn't have it. And I did not know how to handle the situation. I felt so attacked on my own integrity, but also... I actually looked at these people that I love, but like, you're mean. Like, why would you do this to the world? Like, can't you understand? And I actually stood up and walked out and I felt so ashamed. And I found myself circulating the block like a few blocks away. And I'm like, what do I do now? Like, do I just stay proud and, and leave and not talk to them? Or should I just like eat up my own shit basically and go back and say, I'm sorry. And I did go back and say, I, I do apologize. And it was so beautiful because I was almost expecting them to look at me and be like, why would you walk out on us in the middle of a dinner? But they just showered me with love. And my aunt actually said, I know this is really difficult. And I know you feel like nothing is happening. And you're trying all these things for no reason. She's like, you're planting seeds everywhere you go. And you have planted seeds with me. And although I may not be vegan right now, like, of course, I started to think about things differently, because you have been starting these conversations. And that really stuck with me. It's that we can't make mm -hmm. people change. And maybe I'm not right. Maybe just because I'm vegan, it's not, doesn't mean that I suddenly know everything. And that's also what I've learned. And like the issue is more complex than just saying yes or no to me. So that's something I've learned. But the thing that stuck with me is we are planting seeds. And that's why I do really speak for individual actions. And I want people to understand that they are much more important than we might first think. 
And one main reason is because we continuously plant seeds in the world around us. I love that. Isn't that great? And and there's a chapter called Planting Seeds, which was fabulous. And I think it might be that one that was talking about the purple flower in a field of yellow, that you or one can be taking this action, but they're the only one. And so they're the odd man out, you know, oh, that's weird. Why are you doing that? And so other people shame you or make you feel different. But I do think the point of, and I think it's such a great metaphor. So you've got a sea of yellow flowers. You're the purple flower in it you're the vegan or whatever it is, right? And the evangelist on something. And you're just little by little seeds are going to come off that purple flower. And that yellow will little by little turn a little bit more purple. And I thought that was a great way to think about individual action that can spread. Because I think we all know at this point that a lot of the corporations have told us, oh, well, you should recycle. It's your problem. It's your problem. It's your problem. And it's like, no, actually, it's your problem because you're still producing things with these toxic materials. And so I think that's where it starts with the guilt and the shame that I'm not doing enough. And then we get overwhelmed with all of the sort of, I don't know, ideas and what can I do? One of the things in the book that I loved also was sort of the four pillars do you want to walk us through those? Because I thought that was also another great way to think about how you don't want to be the angry vegan, which is another one of your chapters, which I love, right? Like that that evangelist that's like, I'm determined to change our mind. That doesn't work. But talk about the four pillars of sort of how you think we could be better, maybe storytellers. Yeah, for sure. And I just want to just mention quickly before we move on, we have to remember that the guilt and shame is actually manufactured by the industry many times. So yep. let's remember that. Amen. <laughs> and I love what you said about recycling. You know, it's like, let's turn the lens back on you guys. Thank you for bringing up the four pillars. The reason I created the four pillars, and I'll just mention them briefly, they're choosing change, dealing with awareness, creating optimism and becoming leaders. And I wanted to really, because I've asked myself for so long, like, what does it take for us to change? And how do we find hope in these times and how do we continue to show up for that work? And so I recognize that there is definitely obviously a mindset shift that needs to happen. But then also we need to start thinking of ourselves as part of all of this. Like what does it mean for us to not just live through these times, but actually show up for the work and to do so feeling like we matter. And so the first thing I think we have to recognize is that we have to just start choosing change. And we are pretty scared of change most of the time, especially when things are already very uncertain. But we have to recognize that it takes a lot of us as humans to say yes to change in any form, right? And like if they they can be small changes, like a diet change, but it can also be major changes, like changing a career. And when it comes to climate change, not only is everything we know changing in terms of weather and seasons and things what to predict. I just heard a new term called weather whiplash, which I find so helpful because that's literally what we're going through right now. Um, Yes. So in all this already existing uncertainty and change, how do we actually say, Yes to change. So what does it mean to stay curious and to start exploring other ways of living life and other ways of creating society that's more community based? And so I do think, I mean, I'm a climate optimist. I think there are so many ways that we can create an even better world than what we know today. And the future may not just not be doomism, but it can actually be better than and more beautiful than anything that we have seen today. But how do we start to muster that curiosity and that courage to act on that new vision? I think starting by just saying like, okay, I'm going to be someone who says yes to change. And in the book, I mentioned many ways that we can start doing this on a daily basis and practicing becoming change makers in our own lives, because that will then, you know, ripple effect and make us more willing to say yes to bigger changes too. But it starts right there. And so after you sort of go through like, you know, the choosing change phase, 
You have to, what we talked about, dealing with awareness. What does it mean to stay aware of what's going on? And I just read this new article about the fact that the Amazon rainforest may have reached a tipping point, which I find to be so terrifying. And I don't read every single article that I come across because I think there's a little bit of healthy denial that's needed. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. (laughs) But also, I understand that as a climate optimist, I do have to stay aware. I need to know what's going on. And it's also that awareness that motivates me to keep trying. But you do have to find a way that you have a balance so you don't feel overwhelmed because then you actually become inactive and give in to despair many times. But how do you find a balance of knowing what's going on, but also at the same time, stay motivated to take action? And that's where the creating optimism piece comes in, because in order to be an optimist, like I said, you need to be an optimist in action, like I call it, where you're not just hoping on the sidelines and wishing for things to work out, but you're actually showing up for whatever change you can make happen. And in doing so, create optimism from within. So you're not choosing to be one. You are acting on that. You're creating optimism on a daily basis. And that is also where we become leaders. I love to remind people, as I remind myself, that not one single person can change the world. And if we take on the mission to change the world, we're going to get overwhelmed very fast. But we all have the power to change our own worlds. And so when I become a leader of my own life and I do whatever I can to change my world, what we said we will start planting seeds and that change will ripple effect. And so by changing my own world, I will automatically start to change the worlds of the people around me. And then they will be inspired to take their own action. And when all of us claim agency over our own worlds, who knows how fast we can go through like massive changes, right? So I think we're stuck right now because we have this idea that it's our fault and we all have a responsibility to save the earth, technically. And I think anyone who says that to themselves are going to get overwhelmed and very stuck in like, okay, what does that mean? Where do I start and what do I do? But if we take the lens away from saving the world instead of and instead put focus on how can I change my own world, I think that's when you start to become empowered. Oh, that's so spot on. I have a question too for you. As a fellow New Yorker, you're across the park here from where I am. So did you find it a hard adjustment coming? You came from Sweden, correct? So coming from Sweden to New York City and viewing New York City as this place where there's so much disposal happening around us. Was that hard adjustment for you to become more of an optimist versus the angry version? I would say moving to New York is what really propelled me to get serious because I had been sort of doing my own thing back in Sweden and I came here for an internship and all I had to do was go on a lunch in Bryant Park. And like you said, disposals everywhere from lunch utensils and coffee cups. And I was mind blown. And I realized then that it was a culture and it didn't matter how much I focused on each individual because there needs to be a culture shift. And I think also we don't talk enough about choice architecture and the fact that that's super powerful. And it's not about, although we do have to continue making our own changes, empowering ourselves and then doing so ripple affecting that change around us. We also have to head for the bigger changes by making it easy for people to make the right thing, right? It shouldn't be where it's hard. You have to always think a second time before you do something to save the earth. It has to be where like, no, it should be hard to pollute the earth and easy to do the right thing. And that's where choice architecture comes in. But it's a great question because I was super overwhelmed moving to New York City. And I think it was in coming here that I said, okay, this is it. Like I'm going to dedicate my my life's work to doing I can see that. I can definitely, as someone who also, I you know your work is so moving and so powerful. I'm from here, 
But when your eyes become more open to really seeing and witnessing what's happening around you in such a grand scale, you just think, oh my gosh, I mean, we have to better about educating what we need to do and why, because it is profound, the amount of garbage here. And I like that. I, I, the choice architecture, I'd love to dig into that a little bit more, Yeah, you know, cause I think that's a really profound statement of like, it should not be hard to save the earth and it should be hard to pollute it. But the reverse is true right now. Even just recognizing that, that then we can make better choices because I, you know, you hear a lot of like, well, I don't know, what is it going to help if I'm composting? It's like, well, get your whole neighborhood to compost. Like, how can you roll that out? But where do you think, like, where are you seeing good choice architecture examples right now? I'll give a very concrete example that I wish to manifest right now with you guys that I've actually been Great. part of supporting for a while. And it's a new law that's being introduced here in New York City. And now I'm not going to remember the number of the law, but it's called skip to stop. And basically what it means is that it will enforce each restaurant in New York City area and all the suburbs that they can no longer give out disposable plastic utensils by default, only if the customer requests it. Right now, it's almost the opposite where each restaurant is like, I need to give away plastic for it because what if they have nothing to eat with? And like, oh, yeah. Poor, you know, what's going to happen? Like someone can eat their food. It's not the end of the world. But that's what they do. So even sometimes if you say, I don't need a pork, they still put one in just because they're so used to it or they forget or they're like, well, maybe she's not sure about it or whatever. So instead of making it hard to say no to plastic, it should be like, well, if I really need one, I'll request to say, hey, can you please give me a fork? And just imagine how much we can cut out by that simple yes. shift in choice architecture. And the restaurants are going to save money too. So it actually is a win-win in so many ways. But I think recognizing that just making the choices for people easy to save the earth and not the opposite is such a simple ship that we can all get behind. We ordered takeout yesterday for dinner and on the order form, it had a checkbox. Do you want cutlery? Oh, great. Was that a, so, was what company was that? This was in Atlanta. It was a, an Indian restaurant oh. in Atlanta, but I thought that that was so brilliant, smart. Right? Yeah. Because I don't want it. And even when I get takeout in my neighborhood, Serenby, I'm coming back to the office or my house. I'm not sitting in a park eating. I'm, you know, so there are real utensils here. So I love that. That's a great example of it. I try to always bring a fork with me in my bag. So just in case I want to have a salad and go, yeah. I don't need one. So, you know, well, you see a lot of people the past years selling reusable straws in the little case that you can like flip out and all that stuff. And I feel like that was kind of like a hot item, you know, two or three years ago. And every once in a while, you'll see somebody sort of whip one out. And I know a straw is more of a symbol. It's not changing the plastic in the yeah. ocean so much, but it's a symbol of what we should be thinking about. And I now, through the awareness, like almost cringe when I see a straw, <laughs> you know, it's like so I don't funny. want it. <laughs> Yeah. You know, like I'll take the top off and, but it's an interesting thing, but I think that's really an important thing. It's like culture shift and choice architecture are so important because we can't do it alone. We need other people to sort of help us kind of like that. I think that's what, is it nudge, you know, kind of those nudges to get you to change behavior. The other thing that I really loved, which I think, you know, we've sort of been talking about is this empowerment or through the awareness, you can sort of unlock your curiosity 
to learn. And not that it's like a fun adventure to learn about the horrors of climate change, but if you are open to learning and taking in the information, not only can you then be a catalyst for education for others in a very polite way versus the angry way, it's like that first step, like awareness is the first step. Like we have to we have to admit we have a problem before we're going to be able to make change. And I feel like a lot of us, corporations, government, individuals, you know, are just like three little monkeys with, no, you know, here no mm-hmm. evil, see no evil. It's a challenge. And I think we're in that place right now where I think everybody's like relatively holding hands and saying like something's going on weird with the weather. How do we mitigate it? You know, or how do we think about it? Like I grew up in California and this week is these crazy bomb cyclone atmospheric rivers. Unbelievable. And it's like three weeks of rain. I mean, California, it's so rare to have that much. And in this concentrated period of time. And so I think that that very much is waking people up. And, but the next, we're really not going to be able to do much about it. So it's like, how do we mitigate? Right. And so those solutions then can become the curiosity of like, well, let's find the answers that are out there of what we can do for people in these situations to create resiliency. We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out. What's that, Monica? The (laughs) Biophilic Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes. And I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Serenby for the sixth annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26th, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. Yeah. Also, like what I love what you talk about too is the interest lies in, in the curiosity of knowing about the outdoors. So I love that you also have that thread there too, that the more we learn about the nature around us or the spaces and places around us, you're like, oh my gosh, now I want to be an active participant in what's happening in my little community, whether it be like a quarter square mile of something or a mile or whatever it might be, you become more an active player and creating that change. As you just said, that I love the choice architecture. Then you become that person to move that needle and that seed. It all, I just, I love the sound and the thought of that awareness. And it all starts with that mindset shift, right? And that's where what I started to understand more and more was like, 
I can shame myself as much as I want, but that, that does not spark curiosity at all, right? And I think when we can, we learn about climate change and I think what's happening is that more and more people are becoming aware and especially because of these weather events, right? And if we choose to not be aware and not want to know, that's very disempowering and can be very fear-mongering in itself because we do know, right? It's like it's going to continue to just knock on the door. Like, you know what's going on. Like, why don't you just start to actually pay attention? But when we do pay attention and we do recognize what's going on, instead of shaming ourselves and getting overwhelmed, we can say, wow, we need to change. How exciting. What can I do? Right. And when you... I love that. Yeah. When you yes. look at it from that lens and you start to find community of other people who feel the same way, you feel very empowered. And yes. that is also how you continue to show up at Climate Optimist is because you are doing the work, not alone, with other people. And I am so <laughs> overwhelmed these days. I actually put a Google, what do you call it? Google alert on for Climate Optimist and Climate Optimism. Just so uh -huh. I'm staying in the loop of what's going on. Yeah. And like, I can't sure. keep up because... Every day I get like, here are 10 new articles about climate optimism and like, here are reasons to be optimistic about the world. And I'm like, there's so much of this out there now, which is amazing, but I cannot read them all. So I think once we also put on that awareness, you turn on the switch to your awareness, there will be a lot of negativity creeping in and that can be scary, but you also allow yourself to see the positive and the beautiful and just like to actually know what's going on. And I think we have to recognize that a lot of changes are already happening. And so it's not like we're starting from ground zero where you, we can just onboard the movement and, you know, fuel whatever is already out there. But it's only by participating ourselves that we actually feel like this is possible. Because if you're standing on the sideline, I think you're going to continue to feel overwhelmed. Yeah. And I think Jen sends a lot of study with like neuroscience and neuroaesthetics and how nature affects your brain. And, you know, you talk about that a little bit as well, how optimism sort of broadens our minds and to your point sparks creativity and then i also love the word courage you use a lot and give provide you courage to try new things versus fear right and anger shut you down and i thought this was you know like and create a tunnel vision that disables us from seeing anything else like it's so you're so angry and so scared that you're sort of backed into a corner and you can't see anything except that emotion and so that to me is always helpful to be empowered is to understand why your brain is doing this and why we're feeling this. Cause a lot of it is the fight or flight. And a lot of it is the dopamine. We need the, the horror of this terrible thing happening. You know, you can't look away. And so how do we shift the triggers to be mind broadening? When you decided to write the book, did you know, like, were you just sort of pouring yourself into it? Because it's, it's a wonderful, like, it's very accessible, great stories. It's funny. I tend to think, you know, a lot of people are like, a climate book. But it's really wonderful. Short little chapters. There's a lot of them. But tell me about the process. Like, when you decided to do it, did you know what it was going to be? Well, thank you so much, first of all. And I'm so honored that you read my book. I still can't believe people oh, are reading it. wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> we encourage all of our listeners. We, we'll put we a love link, all we'll the books. A, a link in the show notes. Yeah. Thanks. I have been writing this book for about 10 years. And Whoa. it started out as a self-help book. And it was focused on change and helping people go through changes. And that was really where my passion was. And then the more I kept writing, I was like, this needs to be about climate change. And I recognize that I'm pretty unique. I have a library of climate books. I've read most of them. I'm very nerdy. I would dive into a podcast about global warming and financial systems that used to change. And I understand that most people don't. 
could listen to that or read that, especially my age. So I wanted it to be a very accessible book for people who are not going to dive into the other climate books out there. I don't claim to be a climate expert. I'm not a scientist in any way. I've just have read so much in my days and have a pretty great understanding for it. But I wanted it to be with a focus on us, the individuals and the people who ultimately can make change happen, but also the people who have to live through these times. Being someone myself who has dealt with climate anxiety for about 15 years, I understand what people are going through. And I wanted it to be a book that I wish I had when I went through it. So that's really how I wrote it. And I, it became pretty clear to me the chapters had to be short because I myself know that I start reading at night and I make it four pages and then I'm, I'm done. <laughs> Not out for the night. Yes. I always wish that I can like finish a chapter because you feel so achieved when you're like, oh, I'm done with the chapter. I'm good now. So yeah. that was very intentional. And I do think, and this is some feedback I've gotten too, is that even if you don't care too much about climate change, you can still gain some insights because the book is truly about empowering you as an individual. And I think you can apply a lot of the teachings and thoughts onto anything in life. But I also want more and more people to recognize that we are living through climate change, all of us. It's nothing, something you choose or not choose. But I want people to realize that that does not have to be a bad thing. It can be a very empowering thing. And when we recognize that we are here to make history right now. Every single person alive today are going to live through some pretty crazy times, pretty exciting times, in my opinion. And I think, I mean, my daughter is two months old. When she is my age, I can't even wait to see what the world is going to look like. And I hope it's going to be better than anything we've seen today. But it's up to us to make sure that's possible. Are you speaking of your two-month-old, your beautiful baby on your lap? Um, are you excited for these the young people? I mean, do you speak to them a lot and hear about their excitement? Or are you hearing more about their fears? Because, you know, these kids of today, the 20-year-olds and the teens are really like putting their stake in the ground saying, we're activists. We want to change the way things are going. But are you excited to see their excitement for the future? I mean, yes, I am amazed by their passion and commitment. And what they can do, I mean, just look at the youth movement right now. I think we owe a lot of the attention worldwide due to the youth movements. I will say majority of them, though, are pretty concerned and afraid and angry. And they have all the right to be because they're not promised a beautiful future right now. And I would be angry, too, if that was me. I mean, I'm also not that old, so same for myself, right? But I am also seeing an emergence of climate optimism in those age groups as well. And just the fact that they continue to show up means to me that they're optimists. Yeah. Otherwise, they would just give yeah. up. And they don't give up. They show up to the meetings. They show up to the marches. They use their social media to share awareness and spread awareness and get people to care. And so 100%, they make me hopeful. And I think it's because of people like them and people from all age groups that, that I will remain an optimist. We're about to maybe we're already there, where I think corporations are leading the way a lot. And not to say that governments aren't. You have the cops and the UN and all different things happening, but are we really, it'll be interesting to see, but I think the corporations are starting to recognize it's actually back to sort of the choice architecture. It's more expensive to not deal with it. So they're realizing that going circular or stackless or having a healthy environment, bringing nature inside or having nature retreats for your employees, like that's the future. Like everybody wants to be connected and to 
live in a more beautiful way. And so that starts with 95% of our time, unfortunately, is spent indoors. And so it starts with the interiors, but the corporations have a huge role to play because that's where we spend so much of our lives, even though, you know, people are working from home now and such. But I think that's where I'm sort of fascinated to see what's happening with corporations. Is there anybody that you feel, I mean, obviously there's the Patagonia's of the world, but anybody that you sort of track and admire that's doing some really good work? I'm not supposed to be biased, but... <laughs> that's <laughs> okay. Be biased. No, I think that's okay. I, I, and I, I love that you bring this up because there is, especially in sort of the climate world where people become very black and white and say it's because of capitalism that we're in this mess in the first place, which is true in many ways, right? It is true. But yeah. we also have to recognize that it's because of capitalism that we have a lot of beautiful things in the world and that we can rely on heat in our buildings and all these things, right? Like we have created a society based on capitalism. So boycotting that is not the solution. But since since the corporate world has a lot of power, as with any power, it can be used in a bad or a good way. And if we can transition businesses to actually become stewards of the earth and empower communities and provide solutions and fund these solutions, because let's be real, we need money for this. Like it's going to be, even though it's more expensive to not act on climate change, it's also requires a lot of investment upfront to find these solutions and to fund them. And so I'm very inspired by companies from all different kinds of industries stepping up to that plate because they also do recognize that they will lose money, you know, in a pretty near future if they don't act, right? Like to your point there. So a company I'll mention is BMW mm, because I happened to, I had the honor of visiting their universe this summer in Munich and interviewed lots of people in their company and because I was a podcast host for them. And so I had the opportunity to see really from the inside out what they're working on and this sort of, honestly, climate optimism that is just kind of circulating in their staff right now. And so that was really eye-opening and empowering for me. But there are other companies too that fashion companies that are starting to look more to circularity and introducing vintage pieces in their collections and, and funding fashion recycling systems because so far it's been really hard to recycle fabrics. But now that's starting to change. And yeah, I mean, I can probably now my mom brain is like blanking on actual companies, but like you said, Patagonia, <laughs> okay. amazing. I just feel like there is actually more change than we might realize within the corporate world. And as long as we keep holding companies accountable for what they're doing, but also at the same time celebrating positive change and also maybe recognizing that it's not going to happen overnight because these companies have big systems already in place, but any sort of change from a big company for the whole industry is bigger than a small company being 100%. So I think although we need to also support new companies coming to market and help them fund their new ideas, we should also celebrate the fact that bigger companies are trying. Totally agree with that. Yeah, I think you said something in, in, a, in an article I read about the shareholder economy versus the stakeholder economy. Do you want to touch on that for just a second? Or I just think that's an interesting, again, culture shift. And again, the more that we recognize that sort of there is a different way or a better way yes, to whether that's run a company or do you want to talk about that a little bit? Shareholders versus stakeholders. Yeah, because I think that really is what this whole idea of money and capitalism being good or bad, it comes through in shareholder versus stakeholder economy. And so what we're used to is shareholder economy and capitalism, where what company only looks to make the biggest profit for their shareholders. And so all the decision-making is based upon how can we make the most money in the next quarter. It's not even the next year, but like the next three months, which is, okay. is really hard Absolutely. to install any change in three months. And so 
if you have to make an investment up front that will for a short while maybe backtrack a little bit, they can't do that because it's not going to show. And so by law, they can't do that because they have to make right. a profit for the shareholders. So that's a shareholder economy. But luckily, a lot of companies are moving to stakeholder economy where you look to all of the stakeholders play in a business operations. So it can be the community that they're operating in. It can be the employees and the employees' families and their futures. The environment plays a part. So you're looking at like, as a company, as a business, what are the different stakeholders that we are responsible for? And what decisions do we need to make to make sure that the stakeholders are all spoken for? So, you know, it comes to ethical practices in the workforce, of course, but it also comes to like, you know, how can we make our production clean so that our stakeholders' future is spoken for? And so when a company is working from a stakeholder perspective versus a shareholder perspective, they can make very different kinds of decisions. This is where I get excited and optimistic and hopeful because more and more companies are recognizing that not only is it a moral right thing to do, but there's also money to be made. And that actually enables them to make those investments where what if we transition our supply chain to, let's say, hemp or whatever. In the long run, we actually can save money doing that because there's so much hemp waste everywhere that we can benefit from. But we do have to maybe change our machines or whatever. And like for a short while, there's going to be an investment involved, but that will turn into profit in the future. So companies are starting to recognize this. And I think stakeholder economy just enables us to make those bigger shifts. That is so good. Yeah, no, I love that. So what are you working on right now? What, That's what, what I was going to ask. I mean, besides <laughs> you're trying to, say, I'm you know, keep babies. A child, I don't know. A, a, a child alive, yeah. <laughs> I did not realize how overwhelming it is to be a mom. And now I'm like, I have so much respect for women all over the world. I have not slept through the night for over two months. Oh. That's okay. But I am still so passionate about my work. And obviously she just excels my work. Now I really have a reason to fight for the future. So I'm hoping to do some book tours coming up, first of all, because I want to get out there and meet people and really, you know, get to talk to people one-on-one and in person. I'm also working on releasing my masterclass because I have recorded it. And it's Great. technically the book in video format. So if someone who doesn't want to read, you can Wonderful. take a 10 session masterclass and sort of get the same gist of the message. And I'm working a lot with schools and colleges, actually, to come speak to students because that's really where... I'm finding and where teachers are finding the messages needed. So I'm hoping to yes. do some underground work in the months to come. Oh, I love, I love that. I love well, Education the, is key. Yeah. Well, and the book just came out. I feel like I'm on TV. I'm holding it up. The book just came <laughs> out, right? It just came yeah. out this month. So it's brand new. It's available everywhere. We'll put a link in our show notes. But I just thank you so much for coming. I mean, I think you know, the whole idea of shifting the narrative, right? And whether that's a storytelling or your mindset or the economy, it's so exciting. And we need this. We need people to be optimistic because we want them in the movement. We don't want them turned off. And we're just thrilled that we had you and that you were able to do it even with a two-month-old and (laughs) two-month-old baby. I know. Oh, and before we let you go, where can we support you? Are, are you on LinkedIn or Instagram or like social channels? How can we, we're go, we'll put everything in our show notes, but how can we support you and follow you and all that good stuff? Yeah. And thank you again for having me. It's been so fun. And, you know, we prayed my baby wouldn't wake up and she did. So what can you do? You roll with it's it. It's all good. But no, I am on all the things. I have a website, the climate optimist, the climate optimist.com. I am on Instagram. My name, Andrew Janeri. TikTok tried to be more active, climate optimist there. I'm on LinkedIn, on Twitter. So, and I have a, actually have an, a newsletter, a Substack oh. weekly newsletter where I do Perfect. put a oh, lot wonderful. of writing into. So 
And you said that you had a podcast. Is that still alive and well? Or The podcast is out there. I have taken a break from recording it because it's a lot of work, as you guys know. But yep, yep. there's already tons of episodes infused with climate optimism. So Hey Change Podcast Perfect. is out there in any podcast platform. Fantastic. Add that as well. And Therese, thank you so much for your time. We really love this conversation. We could talk to you all day, but we look forward to, well, I look forward to walking in the park with you soon and hopefully you'll get down to Serenby and be with Monica and Katrina as well. But thank you for your time today. We really, really appreciate it. Wonderful. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. So Monica, I think optimism is something we're really aware of on this podcast. From day one, we've talked about how anger and fear won't get us very far and are not really inspiring ways to make a movement. So I'm curious if there's anything that really surprised you about our conversation with Anne Therese. That's a great question. I'll say that when we first floated this idea with our producer, Katrina, you know, we were a little afraid that climate optimism would translate into toxic positivity, where the scary realities of climate change aren't really being addressed at all. So once we started diving in and we read the book, we were really pleasantly surprised that her message couldn't have been further from that. The other thing that surprised me is that her perspective on individual action, you know, we hear a lot from experts that individual action doesn't really matter or it's less impactful, even if all of us did it. But what she really positioned it as is individual action is really important because we're planting seeds and those seeds will grow. And I made the comment in the interview about the purple flowers and the yellow field, or maybe it was the reverse, mm-hmm. but That, I guess, analogy really stuck with me that slowly but slowly, you as the outlier might be able to change something. So I really love the idea of planting the seeds. Me too. I think I just, like you just said too, I just had that thought in my head of, oh my gosh, planting seeds. I get it. Now I really, really get it. And I love this idea of like thinking about eating a veggie burger or whipping out my reusable utensils. That doesn't necessarily mean much in a grand scheme of things, but these are small ways to influence your network that will hopefully continue to have that ripple effect. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I love the term choice architecture, which I'd never heard of before this interview. This gets us more towards the role of corporations, but some of the things like making plastic utensils a special request when you're doing takeout at a restaurant rather than a giving, that that new choice architecture seems like a small thing, but I think that could have a big impact if it's replicated all over your block, New York City, the world. Yeah. So if you are struggling with anger or anxiety about climate, and who isn't really these days, we cannot recommend this book enough. It's such a great perspective shifter and reminder about how that exciting possibilities that are out there in the future. Yeah. And the book is linked in our show notes, along with Andrea's Substack signup and social links. She is definitely somebody you got to check out. The book is super accessible and we were thrilled to have her. So we'll be back with another great guest in a couple of weeks. Well, see you later, Monica. Bye, Jen. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the biophilic movement.